Yesterday was the equinox, and today is the, the second day of spring. And, of course, the ancients believed that the world was born anew on each vernal equinox. So I thought I would talk about newness and about uh, inner renewal. And in order to talk about this, I'm going to talk a little about the brain. Neurologists talk about how we have top-down and bottom-up circuits in the brain. Top-down circuits go from memory centers down to perceptual centers. Bottom-up, the reverse, go from perceptual centers up to memory centers. When we're seeing something new, when we're trying to figure out what we're looking at, we're in our bottom-up circuits. When we fully know what we're looking at, when we remember and recognize it, we're in our top-down circuits. Now, top-down circuits, most of our lives, we are in top-down circuits because as adults, we recognize most of the world around us. And in fact, one of the advantages of the top-down circuits is that they're so efficient. You know, we don't, every time we look at a fork, we don't have to re-figure out what a fork is. We can, we, we know it so intimately, we can just pick it up and use it without any thought. And, and with many of the items we have, say, around the house, anything like that, we, we know immediately what it is. We pick it up and use it without a thought. And so that's the advantage of the top-down circuits. Um, it allows for, for a high degree of efficiency and productivity. The disadvantage is more subtle and has to do with uh, the emotional states of these two systems. Um, the bottom-up circuits are often associated with wonder. And they, the bottom-up circuits stimulate the pleasure centers of the brain. They're very hopeful. They, there's almost a magical quality. In fact, you know, young children are in their bottom-up circuits almost all the time because they're figuring out the world. And really, the, it's the nature of the bottom-up circuits that it, it contributes to what is known as the magic of childhood, that, you know, that sort of wide-eyed excitement that children have, young children. Um, and by contrast, you might say that the emotional tone of the top-down circuits is weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable. Um, especially if we default, as many people tend to do in this, this very busy society, default to top-down circuits all the time. Because if I'm walking through my whole day in top-down circuits and everything is known, 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 same old, same old, same old, um, and then the whole world is kind of joyless. Um, it, it's all known already. And so in many, many ways, you know, part of the trick of, part of the trick of, of having more joy in life is learning how to get, you know, get back more of our bottom-up circuits. It, it's something that exists within us. It's a capacity within us to exercise that and develop it. Um, unfortunately, we live in a society that likes to manipulate that, you know, and, you know, 
you know, certain many industries will will sell you the newest product. Here's the new thing. Here's the new thing. You know, and and each one get has a hit of excitement. You know, but then after a few days, it wears off, and then it just blends into the same old, same old in the background with everything else, and then you have to to buy the next new thing. Um, I also think that. Um, at least sometimes when people are really, really excited about travel, like travel is the highest value in their life, um, it makes me wonder if if travel, as it were, gives them a kind of permission. They go they go somewhere new, and then they can be in their bottom-up circuits, and they feel all this joy, and then they come back, and it's same old, same old, and then they're they're just pining for the next trip at that point. Um, so it's it's almost an addictive cycle. Obviously, it's a much healthier addiction than many others. Um, but of course, it's, it's much more powerful if we can consult, if we can uh, cultivate the bottom-up circuits in our everyday life. And this is exactly what mindfulness practice does. Uh, mindfulness is about looking deeply at ordinary reality. You know, sure, I know exactly what a fork is. I have no, you know, no confusion at all about what a fork is, but I've ever looked at it, you know, and really just sunk into looking at every curve and analyzing it, you know, quote unquote, seeing it as if for the first time, you know. Mindfulness is ultimately about seeing a, a kind of what Buddhism calls a quality of suchness to the world. Just, just the world as it is, apart from any of my, you know, value statements or you know the the veneer of value that I place over everything. It really can be a wonderful mindfulness practice, in in all the sp- the spaces that are familiar to you. You know, your your living space, your working space, all the places where you habitually go all the time, a store that you're in frequently. Every time you're in that place, make yourself notice one thing you've never noticed before. You know, and it really is, it's a wonderfully, uh, it, it's, it's actually a surprising process. You know, there was, um, for a while, when I first moved to Berkeley, I was walking to work. I, wo- I worked downtown and I followed the same path every day. And, you know, sometimes after five or six years of walking that path every day, I'd see something and I think, oh my God, I've walked past that six years and I've never seen it, you know, like this kind of thing. It just, it's astonishing um, how much more opens up when we really start to cultivate mindfulness. Um, And the more we can practice mindfulness consistently, um, we, we gain back some of that joy, some of that rapture of the bottom-up states. The world actually begins to reveal almost a kind of, of sparkle or magical quality. Um, there's a quote by the poet Hopkins, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And, it, and it's really about, you know, the, the, the wonder that opens up when we can look at the world with suchness. And so walking through the world and, and looking at, you know, objective reality with mindfulness, that, that I would call mindfulness level one, and that's very valuable. And, and we, we get a lot of newness 
just from just from a, a steady practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness level two is about how we relate to other people. You know, because of course a lot of relationships, you know, friendships, romantic relationships go sour because both partners become same old, same old. You know, it's the the taking for granted is uh is really a poison in any intimate relationship. You know, and so what does it mean to see another new as if for the first time? What does it mean to to uh to see what is new emerging in them? Yes, we might maybe we've known that person for ten years. Maybe you know, maybe so much is familiar about what they're gonna say and their facial expressions and all that. Can we notice the edge of what is different in the present moment? You know, can we see what what new face is emerging in them? You know, we humans are funny. You know, when when a new face or a new side of us is emerging, you know, it usually doesn't make a bold heroic entrance. It it's usually something that very tender, very hard for me to put into words at the beginning. Um, it might almost come come out in my awkward silences or in you know confusions that I have that I didn't used to have or or something like that. You know, can I see the that edge of something new emerging in someone else, and can I can I really support that edge of something new emerging? Um, you know, and just. We all are, there's so many ways that we're all tidal in our fundamental relations, our fundamental energies, you know, times that we're, you know, we're, we're much more introverted, times we're much more extroverted, sometimes we have a lot to say, sometimes we don't have much to say, sometimes we're overwhelmed with emotion, sometimes we're not feeling much at all, you know, and just, you know, just to, to follow sort of the ebb and flow of those tides in another person. And just and allow them to be, you know, rather than, you know, lock them into, you know, my idea of, oh, they, they must be this way um, to really accept that dynamism of of them. Um, how can I say, you know, people are often fascinated by fire, watching fire, you know, bonfire or something like that, because it's always new. It's always changing, you know. A human being is changing much more profoundly in each moment than a fire, you know. And and to be aware of the that the sort of fire of another person's presence, um, that is a profound mindfulness practice. And I say the final level of mindfulness practice is mindfulness of ourselves. You know, not not the outer otherness, but the inner otherness. Um, our own tidal rhythms, you know. And it's, you know, just as it's very subtle to watch uh, the growth, to witness the growth of another person, um, it's even more subtle to witness our own growth. You know, when when is the first articulation of of a new face within us? You know, 
often it's it's something very uncomfortable. Often it's something so uncomfortable that we, we in fact, you know, me as I know myself now, I turn away from it, you know. You know, and can I, can I be that sensitive to what is emerging within me? Um, there's a wonderful quote I'll read. This is on the quote sheet, which I'll distribute in a minute, but I want to read this one quote from David White. He said, I often think we're a good six or seven years behind the frontier that we've actually physically aged and matured into. And that one of the great disciplines of existence is just to stay up with the frontier of your own maturation, to have said goodbye to what you needed to say goodbye to, and to be saying hello to what you should be saying hello to. But caught in the enmeshment of the strategic mind, which coalesces its identity around false stories and holds on to them, quite often we're a good six or seven years behind where we actually are. You know, and it's a fascinating question because, you know, stories are part of who we are. And what are the ways that I might be holding on to some stories or holding on to some version of some story that's preventing me from growing or preventing me from from stepping more into myself? Um, You know, what what beliefs do I have about myself? You know, that that might have been very liberating at an earlier time in life are limiting now, you know. That's always a very tricky thing when the thing that liberated us at a previous part of life now limits us, you know. Part of part of this part of, you know, this discipline of of keeping up with the frontier of ourselves is I've heard some people call it living on one's edge. You know, and one's edge is where where's where where in my life is the boundary of the the greatest growth where am i really um where where's the sort of inner threshold that challenges me you know and it's uh at least i recognize it almost as a kind of feeling in my body you know what what it means to be at my edge you know there's there's a certain amount of fear even dread <laughs> you know and yet there's also a sense of vitality you know, um, there's a, and 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 almost a kind of um, ineluctability. In other words, like if I if I choose not to face this today, all right, I can do that, but it's going to be waiting for me tomorrow. You know, it's like like the, the longer I put it off, probably the worse the worse it's going to be anyway. So I might as well face it. That kind of thing. Um, all those are kind of together in the the sense of it. Um, yeah, in any moment, how aware are we of our edge? You know, it's it's a wonderful question. And and what would it mean for us to be more faithful to living on our edge? And so it's funny, I think the... Um, you know, we, we live in a culture that is, is almost starved for newness. And, and I think the, you know, the awareness of newness is so profoundly our human birthright. And, and so profoundly um, 
available if we're disciplined enough to to you know cultivate that kind of awareness so at this point i will share the quote sheet first i'll share it with the zoomies so i put a link to the quote sheet there two roomies. From Mengzi, the Chinese philosopher also known as Mencius, he's the, uh, the number two guy in the Confucius tradition, He said, the great man does not lose his childlike heart. Just that connection to wonder and mystery. A wonderful short one from Rumi. Sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. (laughs) From Meister Eckhart. And suddenly you know, it's time to start something new and trust the magic of new beginnings. The Hopkins quote I already mentioned. Yeats said, The world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Andre Gide said, One does not discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. You know, and so often, often in growth there is a kind of risk, a kind of leaving behind what is familiar you know, and what is the familiar that kind of changes, chains us down, you know? Uh, from G.K. Chesterton. One of the deepest and strangest of all human moods is the mood which will suddenly strike us, perhaps in a garden at night or deep in sloping meadows, the feeling that every flower and leaf has just uttered something direct and important and that we have, by project prodigy of imbecility, not heard or understood it. There is a certain poetic value and that a genuine one in the sense of having missed the full meaning of things. There is beauty not only in wisdom, but in this dazed and dramatic ignorance. Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Franz Kafka said, Youth is happy because it has the capacity to see beauty. Anyone who keeps the ability to see beauty never grows old. And I would add not only see beauty, but also hear beauty and music, you know, experience beauty in all our senses. Betty Smith said, look at everything as though you were seeing it either for the first or last time. Thus is your time on earth filled with glory. Joseph Campbell said, we must be willing to get rid of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. The old has to be shed before the new one can come. And I love the way he phrases that because almost always the thing that my head plans 
is not really where my life is going. You know, often that is just an impediment. Christopher Isherwood said, A few times in my life I've had moments of absolute clarity when for a brief second the silence drowns out the noise and I can feel rather than think and things seem so sharp and the world seems so fresh. I can never make these moments last. I cling to them, but like everything, they fade. I've lived my life on these moments. They pull me back to the present, and I realize that everything is exactly the way it was meant to be. A couple from Rachel Carson, remarkable woman. A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and, is, and excitement. It is our misfortune that for the most part, for, that for most of us, that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed and even lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last through a lifetime as an unfailing antidote against boredom and disenchantment of later years, the alienation from the source of our strengths. She also said, It is wholesome and necessary thing for us to turn again to the earth and in the contemplation of our beauties to know the sense of wonder and humility. Peter Drucker said quite simply, If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. Edward Lindemann said, One of life's most fulfilling moments occurs the split second when the familiar is suddenly transformed into the dazzling aura of the profoundly new. And it's not a quote on here, but I remember there was a, a movie that I saw years ago and it featured this eccentric artist and, and someone went to visit the artist and he was just he was just holding this, this fish that he'd caught and just studying it so carefully. And he just muttered something like, it's the moment that something is so familiar that it's strange. Pema Chodron said, to be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. To, be, to live fully is to be in no man's land, to experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. You know, so what she's saying is we can have all kinds of newness. It's not necessarily the most comfortable thing, but, you know, but it's closer to, to what reality actually is. Rachel Naomi Raymond says, most of us lead far more meaningful lives than we know. Often finding meaning is not about doing things differently. It's about seeing things in a new way. Eckhart Tolle said, when you don't cover up the world with words and labels, the sense of the miraculous returns to your life that was lost a long time ago when humanity, instead of using thought, became possessed by thought. The David White quote I already read. Lynn Robinson said, Honor your desire for a new life. Say yes to the small inklings of in interest and curiosity that present themselves each day. And curiosity is just, I think it's one of the most spiritual of all emotions, just that wide open hunger to know the world. And then closing, a quote from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, 
And Jesus, who sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new.